Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Welcome back to part 2B of our trilogy. Or not to be. Or part three of our tetralogy on Lupron and or Elissa. And today we're going to talk about if Lupron is effective in the treatment of endometriosis and endometriosis symptoms. If you did not hear the other two episodes before this on Lupron and Elissa, we highly recommend them. In the first one, we talked about marketing tactics that pharmaceutical companies often employ. So it was highly fascinating. I finally put my anthropology degree to good use. <laughs> And then magazines and online articles say it was a useless degree. Well, it was not. They lied. <laughs> it was not. I did not get the wool pulled over my eyes by the pharmaceutical companies, although I did, as I shared in episode one. So I'm going to go <laughs> but ahead. But you and, learned. You learned. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and retract that statement. Thank you. And in episode two, we talked about the effectiveness of Orlissa. Today, we're going to talk about the effectiveness of Lupron. And then in part three, the final installment of this series, we're going to talk about Lupron and Alyssa together and the side effects of those two drugs. As always, we want to make it very clear that we're not on a crusade against Lupron or Alyssa. What we are on a crusade against is misinformation, the spread of it, or lack of transparency about these drugs. We're not trying to convince you to take them, to not take them. But we just want to inform you of all of these facts because there's so much information out there about Lupron and Orlissa. We learned about all of this so that we could share it with you, so that you could be the most equipped possible to make the best decision for your body. Now, before we jump into the data on Lupron, we just want to remind you that no drugs can treat endometriosis. Lupron, Orlissa, other GnRH drugs, birth controls, the Mirena. These drugs only treat the symptoms of endometriosis. So just remember that your endometriosis can still progress and grow while you are on Lupron and Orlissa and birth control and these drugs. If your doctor tells you otherwise, then unfortunately your doctor is misinformed. And we also just want to remind you that Lupron and Orlissa are not your only choice for symptom management. Sometimes doctors say that this is the only option, and again, those doctors are misinformed because there are many ways that we can manage our symptoms of endometriosis, and we spend so much time in this podcast talking about that. Finally, these drugs, or listen, Lupron, they can have side effects, and some of them can be very serious, permanent, long-term side effects. And that's what we're going to talk about in part three of this series. So, Amy, what does Lupron do? Well, Brittany, I happen to have a pamphlet about what Lupron does right here. 
How handy. You're always prepared. Well, that's what pamphlets are for. They're for your going in your hands. So okay. it makes sense okay. that they would be handy. But actually, I have a pam- I'm not going to lie. I have the pamphlet on my phone. So let me pull it up now so I can answer all your questions. An oh. e-pamphlet. Okay. We're environmentally friendly. I like that. Exactly. Okay. But I actually did get a pamphlet when the doctor offered me Lupron, and it was very shiny and purple, and it was quite beautiful with a lot of smiling people on it. Ask me what you want to know. Oh, you asked me what they do. So yeah, I already asked you what I wanted. You're no. right. You're right. You're right. So <laughs> the pamphlet is informing the consumer, the patient consumer, that Lupron can help you find relief from your endometriosis pain. Well, that's great. My next question is: What does the data say that Lupron does? So on the pamphlet, it shows percentages of people who have found relief. While being on Lupron. So 155 patients were on Lupron for six months. And then one month after finishing Lupron, 53% of them said that they had relief from pelvic pain. So a little over half of the patients taking Lupron actually reported they had relief from pelvic pain. Do you want to know about pain during intercourse? Who doesn't? Our favorite pastime. Intercourse or pain? Pain or pain during intercourse? Both. <laughs> I would have to take solitaire over that favorite pastime yeah, of pain probably. during intercourse. But... I take watching grass grow. <laughs> yeah. For 300, Alex. <laughs> so of 129 patients, 56% of them, so again, a little over half, had relief from pain during intercourse one month after stopping Lupron. Okay, so... That sounds promising, but my head's kind of spinning because I want to know how long that lasted. Was it one month? Was it two months? Was it six months? Did they even actually have endometriosis? Was it diagnosed? Who were these people? I have so many questions. Okay, Brittany, that's a lot of questions. Slow it down, please. Hold your horses. Okay. So, first, I don't know the answer to a lot of those questions because I can only go on what data was provided. So on this e-pamphlet that we are currently looking at, which anyone can go to Lupron's website and download the, it's actually not a pamphlet, it's called the patient brochure. Ooh, even classier than a pamphlet, a brochure. It's like it's going to take you on a, like a safari Yeah, it sounds like a trip. Kenya, like, right? Oh, here's like, a brochure for your European vacation. And there's going to be snorkeling oh, wow. and a little bit of hot flashes Oh, and all-you-can-eat oh. buffet. Oh, you can have S- diarrhea? Splitting migraines. Okay, I don't like this Perhaps pamphlet. Perhaps permanent bone loss. Oh, this brochure gets worse. And sun tanning <laughs> all day long. I don't think I want to go on this trip anymore. On the deck of your cruise ship. Oh. Mm. Eh. <laughs> Still not sure. <laughs> well, the heat flashes might make you feel like you're sun tanning on, in the <laughs> when middle you're in of the, the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it said that, so the people who still had relief... 12 months later, so one year after completing six months of Lupron treatment, 53% of 30 patients had relief from pelvic pain. Okay. Uh, My brain kind of shuddered to a halt, and then my questions are spinning again, starting with, that's a tiny amount of people, 30. What happened to the other 120-odd people? Where did they go? So like, then, I don't know if it followed the same people or if it did. All I know is that it says on the brochure <laughs> for the Bahamas, Lupron of the Bahamas, 
is it just says 53% of 30 patients found continued relief from pelvic pain. Well, if it's not the same study, that's an awfully small sample size to see if there's any sustained relief after using this drug. Well, for pain during intercourse, they looked at 25 patients. Even less. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Where'd they find these people? I don't know. But they said that 76% of 25 patients found continued relief from pain during intercourse. That sampling size is just so small. And I have some of the same questions like, who are these people? How did they pick them? Do they even have endometriosis? If it's the same study, what happened to the other 120 people? There's just so much is ambiguous about this information. My question when I look at this data is how did, okay, so the people who had relief one month after completing Lupron was 56%, like a little over half had relief from pain during intercourse. But now it's one year later and 76% of the smaller sampling size, 25 patients, but now 76% have relief from pain during intercourse. A year later. So the percentage increased. So, yeah. So, like, I, <laughs> like, I don't understand. One of these things does not make sense here. <laughs> you would think they would have had more relief while they were taking Lupron or just, like, to have sustained relief a year after taking Lupron. I don't know. It's just this information has left open a lot of questions for us. I tried to go to the source because it did have a little footnote to, you know, name the source. And then it said the source was, and I quote, data on file, AbbVie Incorporated, end quote. And so AbbVie, wow. AbbVie is the maker of, of Lupron. <laughs> so we can't even see the raw data. Those were all of our initial reactions to the pamphlet. It left a lot of questions unanswered for Brittany and I and our scientific minds and how we just, we really like to... We need to know. We'd like to have concrete information to be able to base our health decisions Well, we wanted to share this to show that it's actually good to have healthy skepticism about what we see, especially if the information is confusing or too good to be true. We were really surprised that a year later, the sample size was so tiny. A sample size of 30 patients for the statistics from one year later? That's so small. When you started with 155 patients, that's a huge drop. And that's how many were in their sample size at one month. It was really weird to us that more people had relief from sex a year later compared to a month later. So Watson and I... Excuse you? You're excused. I think you mean Sherlock and I, because I'm Sherlock. Mm -hmm, So we wanted more information. So Watson, tell us what the website said. We both know I'm Sherlock. (laughs) Then Brittany and I went to their website, which is lupron.gyn.com. And luckily, we found a little more information about where those statistics come from and about the study design behind those statistics. It says that 125 patients from two studies, and each study was a six-month, double-blind, randomized clinical study. 125 patients from these two studies entered into a one-year follow-up study. And that I just quoted directly from their website. 
So the study grouped patients that had received the 3.75 milligram of Lupron Depot during previous trials. And then it assessed the patients for their symptoms and their pain and their pain during sex and all of those things. So on their website, it has more statistics than on the patient brochure to Jamaica. Lupron maker. <laughs> Jalupron. <laughs> I like that way better. You win. <laughs> on the website, it has statistics for relief from painful periods as well. Brittany. Amy. What percent of people found relief from painful periods one month after stopping six months of treatment of Lupron? What percentage had relief from painful periods still a month later after stopping Lupron? That would be 96% of 155 patients. Wow. Considering that painful periods before excision were the absolute most terrifying nightmare of my life, that percentage is so beautiful to me. Like, oh, 96% of 155 patients. But that does make sense because Lupron puts you into a kind of medical menopause so you don't get your period. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, then it makes total sense. <laughs> that makes sense, right? And the, so that maybe the same thing could be achieved if a person was able to take a birth control continuously or like a Depo-Provera where they don't get their period. Using Lupron and using birth control continuously may have the same effect that you stop getting your periods and therefore you don't have to experience those horrendous, horrible, awful endomenstrual cycles. But the overall safety profile of birth control is much better than compared to a serious, serious drug like Lupron, which has been shown to have many side effects. And we're going to talk about that in part three. Britt and I were wondering an actual percentage of people taking Lupron who had amenorrhea, so who did not get their period when taking Lupron. So we went to the FDA package insert which you can also find online easily off of Lupron's site under the prescribing information. It just links you right to the package insert for Lupron. And it says that for Lupron Depot for the 3.75 milligrams monthly, that in controlled studies, 74% of the patients had amenorrhea in the first month, and then 98% of the patients had amenorrhea in the second month of taking Lupron. And it also says that most of the remaining patients just reported light bleeding or spotting. It also says that one month after stopping treatment, only 7% had their normal menstrual cycle resume. And then 71% had their menstrual cycle resume at two months. And then 95% of patients had their menstrual cycle resume at three months. So it makes sense that 96% of patients still had relief from their painful periods one month after stopping treatment because according to the study, only 7% of patients got their period back. By three months afterwards, 95% of patients got their period back. So Brittany, tell us one year later, what percentage of patients still had pain relief during their period? Out of 30 patients, only 23% still had pain relief 12 months after stopping Lupron. I have a question. So you just said that 23% of 30 patients still had pain relief one year later. And I'm just wondering, why 30 patients? 
I thought that 125 patients entered into this study. And yet, oddly, they got the statistic off of 155 patients after one month, and now it's one year later, and they only have 30 patients that they're getting the statistics off of. Why do I feel confused? Why does my head hurt? Why isn't it more clear? They want you confused, and they want your head to hurt, and they don't want it to be clear. (laughs) Well, it certainly feels that way. Brittany and I, then, (laughs) the rabbit hole just gets, like, deeper and deeper. It never ends. We literally spent hours and hours and hours reading. It's like the Lupron (laughs) Matrix. (laughs) Like, you just go deeper and deeper and deeper. We're like, ooh, where does that footnote lead? Oh, (laughs) to another website that has 11 more footnotes. Let's each, you know, go every other to a footnote. (laughs) It's a lot. So then we went to the Lupron package insert because we wanted to know why there was such a small number of people one year later that they had based their statistics on. This is right from the prescribing information of Lupron 3.75 milligrams, which is the monthly injection. So they're talking about the study, and it basically says, and I quote, This included all patients at the end of treatment and those who elected to participate in the follow-up period. This might provide a slight bias in the results at follow-up, as 75% of the original patients entered the follow-up study, and 36% were evaluated at 6 months, and 26% at 12 months. End quote. I love how even the prescribing information says that the results may provide a slight bias. I think that's awfully hilarious. (laughs) And I'm just wondering... What on earth happened to the rest of the patients in the study? Only 26% elected to be followed up with a year later? Why did all the rest drop out of the study? It was a follow-up study that only involved a patient interview. Well, that sounds simple. Why did so many people drop out of the study after electing to be part of it? So now I have a humdinger of a question for you, Amy. Who did these studies? Where did they come from? Okay, I'm ready to give you another possibly confusing answer. That I suppose these studies came from Lupron's original maker, which is TAP, T-A-P. So Lupron is currently made by AbV, but the original maker of Lupron was TAP. And basically TAP was a joint venture, so it's two companies together called Takeda and Abbott. Hence tap. And then later, they dissolved. And then Abbott, one of the companies, it split into two. And one of those two is AbbVie. Takeda and Abbott together made tap. And then they split. And then Abbott, all by itself, split again in two. I can tell you were a teacher of children at one point. (laughs) and AbbVie. So you take Half an apple and half an orange, and you put it together, and you have a frankenfruit. Oh, thank you, Miss Amy. Called tap. <laughs> and then you take them apart. And then you take that half of apple, and you cut it in half again. And you get a half of a half, a quarter of an apple, a quarter of an apple. <laughs> and there's how you have the frankenfruit that became Abby. <laughs> All right, now we want to talk about Dr. Redwine's independent analysis of the raw data of a Lupron. Do you ever think we'll get tired of talking about Dr. Redwine? Mm, I'm starting to develop a bit of like a friend crush on him. <laughs> like, what's the name when you just have a crush on a celebrity? 
I guess a crush on a celebrity. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I thought it had like a specific name. I don't know. Like a celeb crush. Sure. Sure. Go for it. Like a sublush. I've never had a celebrity crush. I do not know how to do this. But I have crushes on really intelligent people like Dr. Redwine. That's fair. Dr. Redwine, if you're listening, which you're probably not, but <laughs> but thanks. if you are listening, we love and admire you so much. You're just so smart. <laughs> I don't think we'll ever get tired of talking about Dr. Redwine and, of course, Dr. Redwine's research. If you're new to the podcast and you haven't heard us mention Dr. Redwine. I don't think it's called mentioning. I think it's fawning over <laughs> is what you might do about him. If we're honest. <laughs> Dr. Redwine, our celebrity crush that we love. Dr. Redwine is a retired excision surgeon who has spent over 30 years researching about the origin and treatment of endometriosis. I'm sorry, Amy. What's an origin? The beginning of something, Brittany, the birth of something, <laughs> where endometriosis came from, the origin of endometriosis. <laughs> I'm so sorry, my sweet dear friend. I think that's origin. <laughs> it's pronounced origin. I feel like it's subject to interpretation. <laughs> I think English has specific, even though English is a completely weird and bonkers made up language, there are specific pronunciation rules. <laughs> potatoes, potatoes, Brittany, origins, erratos. <laughs> I don't know. Can you even say origins? So, <laughs> oh, she doesn't even try. Dr. Redwine, we want, just want to say that he's he is extremely smart. I mean, that cannot be argued. Like, hands down, he is so ridiculously smart. That's not up for interpretation. <laughs> and he is an incredible advocate for, for us with endometriosis. He has spent his career and much of his life advocating for us. And we really recommend that you follow him on Facebook because he is often posting about endometriosis. And then you can check out his research, which is on endopedia.info. So how did Dr. Redwine even get this raw data? I'll tell you how, Brittany. I want to know. Well, he was an expert medical witness in a trial against Lupron. <gasps> a lawsuit. A lawsuit? Oh, that's scary. That was in 2011, and it was a lawsuit that was Karen Klein versus TAP slash Abbott. So my celebrity crush, Dr. Redwine, put together a 300-page report that took him four months. Holy cannoli. <laughs> Very Italian, could you tell? <laughs> 300 pages put together in four months, an independent analysis what he found out by going through the thousands of pages of raw data was that. Din, din, din. The published. I want to know. I want to know. Well, then be quiet. Okay. <laughs> yes, <ma 'am. laughs> put a piece of tape over Brittany's mouth. Oh. Actually, I need to put it over my mouth. <laughs> At least she's aware. <laughs> I have a good self awareness. Okay. <laughs> so the published data about Lupron oftentimes didn't match the raw data. And the published data had cherry-picked information, and it hid and failed to mention information that wasn't favorable. Basically, the published information painted Lupron in a more effective, safer light than what was shown in the raw data. Hmm. This sounds familiar. Did we not also hear about this happening with Orlissa? Hmm. Patterns. It's already happened once. It happened again. Dr. Redwine sent his 300-page report to the FDA, 
and it pointed out fraudulent conclusions and hidden data. And the report was titled Expose. Oh, no, not that. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, sorry, sorry. And the report was titled Looper Lied, The D is Silent. Oh, he did not. Keep in mind that Looper Lied is the drug name for Lupron. And Lupron is the brand name of Looper Lied. If you say Looper Lied, but if you don't say the D, then you say Looper Lie. He is so so funny. God, he has a sense of humor (laughs) just like us. (laughs) We have to meet you. You can't replace me with him. You can't. Dr. Redwine, if you're listening, (laughs) we want to be friends with you. Anyone is listening. I mean, I could just reach out to him. I've, I've, I could just be like, hey, I want to meet you. He'd be like, okay. You're weird. You're an, in- you're an internet troll. <laughs> like, no, I'm not. I'm so no, I'm a very big fan. Okay. <laughs> My cat wants to meet you too. Blo- okay, then I would block you. Instantly yeah. blocked. I'm like, no, don't block me. I rely on all your research to learn about endometriosis. So what did he learn about the Luperli? I mean Luperlide. Or do I mean Luperlide? No, I mean Luperli. <laughs> I've decided. <laughs> He talked about both the side effects and the risks, which we're going to discuss in part three of our lovely trilogy here. In terms of the effectiveness, we're going to talk about that today. Now, of course, we cannot talk about every single thing that he learned because, one, we don't know every single thing that Dr. Redwine knows. And two... I wish. Oh, God. We'd be so smart. We'd be geniuses. Although we kind of are geniuses. But (laughs) anyhow... Two, that would just take a really, really long time. So we're just going to point out a few highlights of things that we found important. Okay, so you would think that the published data from a study would match the raw data from the study, right? Hmm, let me ponder that. What's published should match what the raw real data is. I could see that being the moral and logical choice and conclusion and result. Well, let me shatter your moral and logical dreams. <laughs> Is Doc- it midnight? Do I have to go home now? Yes, Cinderella. And- oh, Amy Rella. But I can't find one of my shoes. That's all right. You'll just hobble home without it. <laughs> there were glass anyway. That's dangerous. When Dr. Redwine looked at the raw data from one study, he compared it to the published data from the same study. And the published data said that 55% of people taking Lupron had relief from their pelvic pain. When he looked at the raw data, however, it said that only 46% of people taking Lupron had relief from their pelvic pain. Hold on. 46 and 55 are two very different numbers. (laughs) Oh, I thought they were the same number, like 53, 54. And then you can either say 46 or 55. No, that's not how numbers work. Mm. (laughs) Tricky, tricky. It's not really clear where that 55% came from. It's unfortunately a trend that we see in Big Pharma that a lot of the articles written about a drug are sponsored by the creators of that drug. The writers could be doctors who are paid by the company or actual employees writing these articles. And this trend was followed in these published Lupron articles. They were sponsored by, reviewed by, written by employees of TAP, which is Lupron's original maker. One of the next discoveries that we want to talk about that Dr. Redwine reported from the original clinical data was that it showed that about half of the people who 
were taking Lupron still needed narcotics for their pain management while taking Lupron. Lupron markets itself as something that reduces endometriosis pain. And we went over some of those statistics at the beginning of the episode. So it's just interesting that about half of the people on Lupron still needed medication for pain management. If you've taken Lupron or if you're familiar with Lupron, you might know that initially when you take Lupron in the first one to two weeks, your symptoms oftentimes flare because all this estrogen is flooding your body. But then after that, when you go towards that menopausal state, that flare dissipates and then your symptoms of endometriosis should reduce. So my point of that was that even after the symptom flare, about half of the people in the study still needed medication. That's kind of astonishing to me because if Lupron relieved pain, then why would they still need to be taking pain medication at all, any of them? According to Dr. Redwine, this information, which for me is is pretty like... It's important to know that. Yeah, the patient is on Lupron to try to get pain management, yet they're still having to take pain medication. I mean, how much pain management are these patients seeing? So Dr. Redwine reported that this information about how half of the patients in the study still had to take pain medication, that this was never reported in the published studies. So this is a really excellent example of hidden information. So, you know, we've talked about in episode one of our super trilogy of Orlis and Lupron that it's a common trend for big pharma and pharmaceutical companies to hide data that doesn't paint their drug in a favorable light. And so if this information about how these patients still need to take pain medication, if it never came out, well, then it's kind of like... Like it never existed. Yeah, it's kind of like it's just, it never happened. Like it was hidden. Like it was not talked about. Because who is going to go looking in the raw data? Okay, Dr. Redwine. And we would go too. Like if we, if Brittany and I could have access to the raw data, we would go look at that We'll get back to you in weeks after we've read through everything. (laughs) We would just go hole up in a cave somewhere, like a cabin out in Wisconsin. That wow, be, what a what a choice. I'd love to go there. <laughs> or Idaho. Oh, that or the be, Dakotas. Oh, that would be so real. Can Montana. we go there? Can we go there now? Let's just plan a trip. <laughs> but actually, we're not able to look at the raw data, even though Brittany and I would be dying to look at it because we just love science and that'd be so much fun. Independent parties cannot even look at the raw data from the Lupron studies because that raw data is all under court seal. So no one is able to take a look at that. Which is really unfortunate because that means that other independent parties are not able to do an analysis of the data. Like, thank God, Dr. Redwine, because of that lawsuit and him being an expert medical witness, he was able to take a look at the data and do an analysis of the data and bring some of these things to light and educate us and advocate for us. What if other people wanted to look at the data, too? I mean, it would be great to have more eyes on the data, more things coming out about the data. And yet, the data is under court seal. I'm wondering why the makers of Lupron asked the court to seal those records. Why did they do that? The makers of Lupron claimed it was for proprietary reasons. I'm wondering what they mean by proprietary. Usually when you refer to proprietary, it's because you need to keep a formula or a recipe. A lot of big companies that have a, you know, like Coca-Cola's proprietary 
formula, that's a big deal. So I'm wondering if they mean the formula for their drug, which is quite interesting because you can actually find the chemical structure for Lupron on Lupron's website itself in the link to the prescribing information. Yeah, we saw it. It was all science. I really felt cool. like I was back 11th grade <laughs> Doing chemistry. chemistry. So we saw their chemical structure online. So mm, what other proprietary reasons could there be? Because Lupron is a GNRH agonist, and then there are other GNRH agonists made in other countries, sold under other brand names, like Cinerel and Solidex. So I'm just wondering, like, what is the proprietary information that was so secretive and so important to their company that it had to be sealed by the court? Well, to be honest, the only thing that I can see that is so secretive and so important is as to why the published data and raw data don't match. Oh, but if the raw data is sealed, then nobody knows that. Ah, then nobody can go back and check that the published data actually matches the raw data. So if the proprietary information is the chemical structure or recipe or formula, and that's easily accessible, what else could they be claiming as proprietary data? Hmm. And the plot thickens. So thick. (laughs) Just like the endolesions do. (laughs) We can only speculate and ponder about why they sealed their raw data. But I think what's important to take away from that is that with the raw data being sealed, we're not able, like scientists or other investigators and researchers, are not able to corroborate that the raw data and the published data match. And that is so extremely important because we're not looking at the raw data. We as consumers and our doctors who are learning about the medicine so that they can feel that they can safely prescribe it to us and they can feel that it's going to be effective for us. They are the ones learning from the published data. We're learning from the doctors or the published data. And if the published and the raw data don't match, that's a huge disservice and perpetuation of massive misinformation and also Lupron is a serious drug with serious side effects, and we're going to talk about that in the next episode. And if we're going to take this drug, we want to know that the benefits from taking this drug outweigh the risks. And there are a lot of risks when you're taking Lupron. So I really, if I'm going to take Lupron, for example, I really want to know that I'm going to have enough benefits that the positive is going to outweigh the negative. But if the published data is inflated or cherry-picked, or important findings are hidden, I'm not able to make the most informed decision that I can. I'm basically making a decision based on falsified information. And for me, that's not good enough because this is my body and what I'm going to put in my body to try to help myself. And I don't want to put something in my body that is going to hurt me and not actually help me. So this study with the published and raw data that we're talking about isn't the only study that's been done on the effects of Lupron on symptoms in the people who take it. There was a separate study conducted by the Endometriosis Research Center. The Endometriosis Research Center is an endometriosis organization that works to address the need for international endometriosis awareness, as well as advocacy work, support, education, also legislative efforts, and they do research. Wow, good for them. They actually did a survey on people who took Lupron. Ooh, so what did the survey show? 
survey says that 48.19% found Lupron to be intolerable. (gasps) I know. I could see that. That's a lot of people. 48.19%? Yeah, that's almost half. Apart from that, though, they actually also found Lupron not helpful for relieving their endometriosis symptoms. So also half of them said it didn't do anything for my symptoms. Yikes. Intolerable and didn't do anything. Yeah, the worst combination ever. (laughs) Yeah, what a good sales tactic. Not only will it only work half the time, but the half the time it does or doesn't work, you'll feel awful. Yeah, I'm going to buy your drug now. It's very disappointing that so many people have found Lupron to be intolerable. We're going to go into this a little bit in the episode about side effects. I do know that from what I've seen, at least on social media and people reporting about their experience with Lupron, this tends to be very common. So we think it's important to point out that there are several studies that show that using birth control pills as a way to manage symptoms has been found as equivalent to GnRH therapy like Lupron. So Brittany and I are not doctors. We cannot tell you or, you know, recommend or advise you on what to do for your treatment, nor do we want to because we're all individuals who need to make those choices for our own bodies. But we just want to point out here that if we have some studies that are showing that birth control pills and GnRH therapy are equivalent for managing symptoms, then it may be a good idea to not go right away for Lupron if you're considering that and to go for the birth control pills to start out with. Because, I mean, one, they're going to be much cheaper. And two, generally, they have much less side effects and the safety profile is better for these drugs than compared to Lupron. It's really disheartening to me that the people who participated in that study Amy was talking about had felt that it was intolerable to use Lupron or that it didn't even do anything for them. I think it's so disheartening because Lupron themselves paints a very different picture of what your symptoms will look like after you've stopped taking the drug. Wouldn't you want to have a sustained improvement of your symptoms if you're going to take a drug that has such potentially severe side effects or has a higher risk? If I were going to take something like that, I would want to know that 12 months out, I would have less pain or less pain with intercourse. I wouldn't want to know that quite soon after I stopped, I would experience those symptoms all over again. Lupron's website paints a picture that after people have stopped taking the drug, they have a sustained relief from their symptoms. Yeah, I'll jump in here with some statistics from the website. Give me those stats. 53% of 30 patients had relief from pelvic pain a year later. 76% of 25 patients had relief from pain during intercourse. 61% of 28 patients had a decrease in pelvic tenderness a year later. So basically in all the categories, except for the painful periods, which we've already talked about, in all the categories, over half of the So we have 53%, 76%, 61%. We have these higher percentages of people who still had relief one year later after stopping Lupron. But what I'm guessing is that you're going to say that this other study did not show similar conclusions. Is that what you're going to say? That is exactly what I'm going to say. Oh, my God. It's like (laughs) like you're reading my mind. It's like I helped write this episode. (laughs) Maybe. 
or I know very well the inner workings of the pharmaceutical companies. Ooh. Thanks to my degree in anthropology. <laughs> so useful. A non-useless degree, by the way. Don't knock our degrees. <laughs> well, that's why it's so disheartening because that picture painted by Lupron sounds so promising. But a different study that was done showed that within three months of finishing the 12 months of Lupron, endosymptoms returned in half of those people. That's such a short time to have pain relief. Wow, their pain came back in three three months months after stopping a year of Lupron. Imagine if you had pain relief for 12 months, if you did have pain relief taking Lupron for 12 months. Overall, only 15 months of all of the pain you've ever had from endometriosis was improved. That's such a short, short time for alleviating the intense, horrendous pain that people with endometriosis experience. And that's so heartbreaking to me to have such a short window of improvement of your symptoms. I mean, it's great to have improvement of your symptoms. Like, it's so great to get a break, you know. I remember before excision, I was concerned I was going to lose my job. Thanks to the flexibility that my job showed me, I didn't lose it. But had I still been teaching, I definitely would not have been able to maintain working, like as a teacher, for example. And I remember I was I was so desperate for relief and I was in pain every single day and I was in debilitating pain every single week. Gosh, how just desperately I wanted anything to relieve my symptoms, even to have a break for just one day. Like, I can understand to take a year of Lupron and to maybe have relief from my symptoms, although probably, you know, have a lot of side effects like hot flashes and migraines and fatigue and depression, like other symptoms. But to get rid of that unbearable pain, I mean, it's just something that a lot of us, we really, really desperately want. But it's really hard because then when we stop taking Lupron, for many of us, we're taking it and we're still having a lot of these like horrible side effects. And then we stop taking it and then the pain comes back maybe within just a couple of months of stopping the treatment, you know, and those terrifying, crippling menstrual cycles come back and the pain during sex comes back and, you know, and this is if it even went away in the first place. And It's just really not a long-term solution. And while it's really nice that we can have that break and like maybe have a year, have 15 months where we can get through the day and we can we can feel better. It's like, well, then what happens when we stop taking the drug? Like, where do we go from there? You know, a lot of people say, like, oh, well, loop runner lists that they were like band-aids on endometriosis. And in this way they are. They're just like temporary relief of symptoms, but not actually addressing the root cause of the endo. And so if we do choose to take Lupron or Alyssa, I think it's really good while we're on that to be thinking like, okay, well, what are our next steps? Like when we come off of this drug and hopefully not, but let's say we're just one of those high percentage of people that our pain comes back after stopping, what are we going to do? What are our next steps to keep managing our symptoms to keep getting through our day? And while it is so wonderful to get just an ounce of relief when we're really, really struggling with our endo pain. Another huge question is, at what cost does this potential year of relief come at? The side effects to Lupron are very serious, and they can even be permanent. We know we keep saying this, but it's just so, so important because we often overlook future side effects because we need the relief now. But we might be trading a year of temporary relief 
for permanent health problems in other areas. So please make sure to listen to our upcoming episode on side effects if you're thinking about taking Lupron. Well, thank you for that, Brittany. So what else are we going to learn about Lupron today? Well, let's talk about another way that Lupron could have skewed or hidden data in their studies. Usually when someone participates in a study and they choose to leave, they have to give a reason as to why they left. Dr. Redwine saw that there was a study on Lupron. When participants dropped out of this study, they had to mark why they left. And some of the reasons could be things like, Lupron's not working for me, or my preference. Which can encompass many things like, my parent is unwell, my child is unwell, I am you know, have other obligations. Why are you mentioning this, Brittany? Why are you talking about this? Why am I telling you? Well, because participants could select multiple reasons, when researchers took this data from the participants dropping out, they could input just my preference rather than Lupron isn't working. (gasps) So it it was a convenient way to hide data and the fact that Some people were leaving the study because Lupron actually wasn't working and Mm -hmm. it was their preference to leave because isn't it always our preference? (laughs) It's my body, my choice. (laughs) Like, that's kind of a weird reason. Like, my preference. Like, well, yeah, no one's forcing me to leave the study, right? Or it's like, partner is forcing me to leave study. Like, I don't think that would have been a reason. (laughs) Anybody would write that. (laughs) Right? Well, it's quite convenient to remove all of those participants who had two reasons, one of them being that the drug wasn't working. Imagine if you could just say they fell into the other camp of they just had a preference. Then you could exclude all of their data on how the usage of the drug was going for them. It's a pretty convenient way to skew the data in the study and make Lupron look like it was more effective than it was. Wow. Well, that is a very convenient way to hide data. I wonder if I should like, okay, I'm going to do a survey. I'm going to bake something Mm -hmm. and I'm going to make a little survey. And it's going to put, like, this food sucks. And then it's going to be like, I stopped eating this food because, my preference, this food tasted terrible. And you can tick as many reasons as you want. But then if they tick my preference and also this food tastes terrible, I'm not going to count that reason. I'm just going to count my preference. Mm -hmm. And then later I'll be like, oh, yeah, no one ate my really crappy food because it was just their preference to not eat it. Not because it was terrible. (laughs) But because I didn't want to. Well, then you would have done exactly what Dr. Redwine reported that this study did. Mm. Sneaky, sneaky. Maybe I'll inject Lupron into the... Whoa, that's really illegal. (laughs) (laughs) Just just kidding. First of all, I don't have access to that. (laughs) First of all, that would taste awful, I'm sure, and people would notice. It would probably be better if instead of using a syringe to inject Lupron, which, again, I would not do because, one, that would be illegal to drug people without their consent, and, two, I cannot prescribe that drug. So it's just a, it's just a joke, people. It's just a joke. Okay. She'd probably use chocolate or something. I'd probably use a syringe and I would just inject that thing with chocolate. <laughs> then it wouldn't be crappy. It'd be great. I was going to say, then no one would be taking People would be like, no, we're taking nothing because we're going to continue to eat it because Tasty. it has surpassed our expectations. Oh, wow. So before we move on to the next point, It's been a lot of information, so let's do a quick recap of what we've learned so far. So, the first thing. The statistics for pain relief one year after stopping Lupron on the Lupron brochure and website. You mean the brochure. Oh, the brochure. My bad. 
had a very small sampling size and, according to the prescribing insert, may have a bias. Another thing was that Dr. Redwine's independent analysis of the data showed that the published data didn't always match the raw data. And oftentimes the published data was painted in a more favorable light than what it actually was. There was also hidden data within the raw data. For example, in a Lupron study where people ticked multiple reasons for dropping out, researchers could hide the fact that they left because Lupron wasn't working by only recording other reasons that they ticked, like my preference. Also, the data on how much painkiller the participants needed to use while taking Lupron wasn't even published. And as we mentioned, several studies have shown that Lupron is no better at pain relief than birth control pill therapy. And in fact, an independent study by the Endometriosis Research Center showed that almost half of the people surveyed said that Lupron was not helpful for their endometriosis symptoms. And also that it was intolerable. The next thing that we want to talk about that Lupron is being marketed for is whether or not it can actually reduce endometriosis lesions. So oftentimes we have our doctors telling us that Lupron can reduce the endometriosis lesions in us or that many times surgeons who are doing ablation surgery, so they're not getting endometriosis at the root, but they're just burning superficially the endometriosis. Oftentimes they tell the patient that, oh, it's okay that I only got it superficially because now you can go on Lupron. And then Lupron will go in there and clean up your endometriosis, or Lupron will go in there and shrink down the rest of the lesions. So first off, we want to point out that that is misinformation. So a doctor cannot leave endo behind in a surgery and then go in there and, quote unquote, clean it up with Lupron or Orlissa or another GnRH drug. We want to talk about where that concept has come from, and we want to delve into that right now. So on Lupron's website, it says that Lupron can reduce, quote, the size of endometrial implants as evidenced by laparoscopy, end quote. So let's talk about that data and those conclusions. I think it's very important to point out that you just said that the evidence of Lupron reducing the size of endometrial implants was shown by laparoscopy. I think that's important because the only way you can see if endometriosis has been lessened, eliminated, reduced, is by a before-treatment laparoscopy and then a laparoscopy after treatment. I really also wanted to point this out because I feel like as people who are in this community and also maybe on Facebook or Instagram communities, see a lot of others out there talking about how things like acupuncture or celery juice or supplements, some special diet or protocol can treat endometriosis. I think we're kind of inundated with that. It's really important to point out that unless there is a laparoscopy done before this usage or protocol and After usage, you cannot prove that any of these things actually treat or reduce the endometriosis. They may make you feel a lot better. I'm sure many of them do. They may help you manage your symptoms, but none of those things have been proven to actually reduce, treat, or God forbid, use the word cure, 
with endometriosis. And I think that's just really important to remember. Our symptoms are an expression of our endometriosis, and they're really heavily influenced by inflammation, what we eat, how much we sleep, how much movement we get, if we've had intercourse this month or no. There's just there's so many things that influence how we feel. And so feeling better doesn't mean that your endometriosis went away. It means that the symptoms went away. So, Brittany, I have a, a riddle for you. I love riddles. If a tree falls down in the forest and no one hears it, did it make a sound? Yes, because sound waves are still created whether or not somebody is there to pick them up with their eardrums. If something says that it reduces endometriosis lesions, but no one sees it or assesses it by laparoscopy, hence no one sees it, does it actually reduce endometriosis lesions? No, because that has to actually be assessed by science. So going back to the reported fact that the studies supposedly showed that Lupron was able to reduce the endometrial implants. <sighs> the one and only Dr. Redwine. Oh, he strikes again. <laughs> oh. Can you imagine? He's like, he's like, I don't know, he should be on, he's like one of the Avengers. He's our Avenger. Instead of Captain America, he's Captain Endometriosis Advocate. <laughs> Thank you, Captain EA. <laughs> well, in his analyzation... <laughs> You mean analysis? Yes. I really prefer analyzation, actually. In his analysis of the raw data, which I imagine he was, like, analyzing or analyzing <laughs> while, while wearing, like, a bodysuit with a red cape in the back with a big EA for endometriosis advocate on it. <laughs> so, Not a lab coat. Not. So as he was sitting there in his cape... If you're listening to Dr. Redwine, it's because we love you so much. This is all, like, you're like a superhero to us. No seriously. case. <laughs> but, like, no kidding. You're a hero to our community. So in his analyzation slash analyzing analysis <laughs> of the raw data, which supposedly showed that endo lesions lessened on Lupron, what he found was that the clinical trial design was flawed. What does that mean? Well, the clinical trial design is the setup. It's how the trial is designed to get the results. And sometimes the design of the trial can make a study have a bias in the favor of the drug. Sometimes the design can be flawed, so it's like not scientifically sound. In this case, what he found was that, so he found two things. Number one, I think many of us are aware of the stages of endometriosis. So for example, I have stage four endometriosis. Also, I like to call that my stage four disaster zone. These stages come from what's called the Revised American Fertility Society Classification System of Endometriosis. Holy moly. <laughs> what is that anagram? A-F-S-C-S-E. AFSCSE. <laughs> That's that organization. AFSCSE. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so the stages are determined via a points system, which these points have to do with the number and the size and the location of the endometriosis lesions and of adhesions. 
Unfortunately, this system, which is what we have, but this has been criticized because it has a pretty heavy focus on adhesions and not on endometriosis. And then additionally, it has criticism because the point system can be unclear to surgeons depending on their level of experience. So I actually went to look up the, and I'm going to read it again, the Revised American Fertility Society Classification System of Endometriosis. And then it has like those typical pictures that a lot of us have seen on social media where it shows like stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four. And the stage four is all like covered over with spider oh, webs. Like a jungle of anger. Yeah, it's just like all like a evil jungle. Nasty looking. Evil swamp. <laughs> nasty looking mess of endometriosis. The stages were originally established to focus on fertility outcome. But I'll also point out that the stages are not a really great prediction of that either. But this explains why in the stages that we have endometriosis, there is a lot of focus on the ovaries, on the uterus, on adhesions. But there is no points assigned to endometriosis that is considered extra pelvic. So that's endo like on the bladder, on the intestines, on the rectocervical space, on the vagina, etc. So in the staging system, points are not assigned for all the different places that endo can be. And we have talked about in other episodes how different surgeons have different levels of expertise. One surgeon might be able to recognize endometriosis in its different colors and forms, while another surgeon might not be able to. So the more skilled surgeon might say that you have a higher stage of endo than a surgeon who doesn't have the same experience. The staging system that we have now is not a perfect system in any way. And so your endo can be assigned a different number of points depending on who's looking at your endo. Oof, that's really confusing, especially knowing that if one surgeon has a lot of experience, they would maybe give you a different stage than somebody who has less experience. That's a little scary. Oh, so this is funny. So they made the system back in 1985. It's been 35 years, guys. Yeah, the system (laughs) is as old as I am. Like, literally. If you need an update, then so does the system. (laughs) Possibly to the day, although it did not say the day that it was made. I'm pretty sure it's time for a revamp. Like a revamp of the system to be a little more clear and to put more emphasis on the endometriosis and not so much on the adhesions. And to just make it more clear and accessible for all the surgeons that are operating in all the different skill levels. So underneath the classification system, it actually writes, and I quote, Distribution of points has been arbitrarily determined and may require further revision. <laughs> Why did they say arbitrary? It was 1985. Oh, that's what Lord. they knew back then. But everything arbitrary. But it hasn't been updated. So, oh, oh, that's horrible. So, okay, so I'll start again. So, and I quote, Distribution of points has been arbitrarily determined and may require further revision or refinement as knowledge of the disease increases. Okay, we've had End a quote. lot of increases here. It's been 35 and years. And no like, revisions. We know a lot more. <laughs> we have Ugh. some... Well, and a lot of people in the endo community, like medical professionals, want this improved. So come on already. So the point of all that was that that is the classification system that was used during the clinical trial where they looked at the patients via laparoscopy to see if the endo lesions were reduced on Lupron. Patients were classified via that system prior to using Lupron, 
and then they were classified again via that system after using Lupron. And so you can see that from everything that we just explained, surgeons could come up with different, because it's a point system. It's like, oh, you get one point for this, and you get 20 points for this. Well, no wonder this study was flawed. If no two doctors could classify the same potentially, then you might get different stages that are reported. Okay, my mind's a little mushy right now. But I recall out of all those numbers, you said there was two reasons. Is the second reason as mind-numbing as the first? No, I think the second one is a little more, what was the opposite of mind-numbing? Mind-feeling. <laughs> mind-blowing? Ooh, I like it. So the next problem with this study was the timing of the study. So Dr. Redwine saw in the study that the patients had their post-Lupron laparoscopy one month after stopping treatment. So here's the thing. On Lupron or on another hormone suppression drug, so like a drug that suppresses estrogen, the visual appearance of endometriosis can change. How does it change? Tell us more. So do you remember we mentioned that in one study that Lupron did, as noted in the prescribing information on Lupron's website, that one month after stopping Lupron, only 7% of people got their periods back. So if only 7% got their periods back, then one month later, it's like Lupron is still having a suppression effect on their bodies because their menstrual cycle didn't come back one month after. And then they're doing the surgery to assess the size of the lesions one month after stopping Lupron when a lot of these people still haven't got their periods back. I mean, not a lot. The majority, like almost all. The vast majority. Yeah. You can see how it would make sense that the visual appearance of endometriosis, the swelling, the inflammation, all of that could definitely be lessened still after one month. Lupron can reduce all of that like visual appearance around endometriosis. So actually, many excision surgeons recommend being off of it for a couple of months, like one to three months before surgery, because it can make it harder to see subtle endo, like endo that's clear, for example. Like it can make it harder to see subtle endo without all of that inflammation. To be clear, it's still there, just harder to see. They really should have done the post-treatment assessment surgery three months after the people had stopped Lupron. I mean, that's when 95% of them got their period back. So at that time, the periods are back, the estrogen is going back up. Endo oftentimes becomes more active again. So then it goes back to being ugly and nasty, being the ugly duckling in there. Quack, quack, quack. More like the ugly dragon going, shred, shred, shred. <laughs> Let's be accurate. It's not a cute duck. <laughs> oh, ducks are so cute. I know, little baby duckling. <laughs> I had a pet duck once. I've always wanted a pet duck. And he loved eating Doritos, which I don't know if it was what? good for him or no, not. No, it but was, I was not. Just, I was a kid. Those are not good for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> True that. Doritos made me throw up, yeah. But they taste good. So to further this point, there was actually a study that was done, and this study was called, and I quote, the second look laparoscopy for the evaluation of the result of medical treatment of endometriosis should not be performed during endometriosis suppression. I thought you said this was less mind-numbing. No, that was so the longest sorry. title I've ever heard. It's like the title of the study was the conclusion of oh the my study. Gosh. All right. It's like too long. Didn't read. Just read the title and it'll tell you everything. Oh, my God. So. 
this study was not done for Lupron. It was done in patients that took Danosol. So this was an independent study, like independent from Lupron, not done about Lupron, but it was done in patients that took Danosol. And Danosol was a hormone used like back in the 80s that before the GnRH drugs were so widely prescribed, but it had the similar effect of suppressing the hormones and suppressing the estrogen. So anyways, what they found in that study, the second, and I quote again, since Brittany interrupted me, you laugh first. <laughs> it, was just so, it was so long. And I quote again, the longest title on the earth, quote, second look laparoscopy. So that makes sense. They're looking a second time, right? They're like, they're doing a laparoscopy to find out. So the second look laparoscopy for evaluation of the result of medical treatment of endometriosis should not be performed during ovarian suppression. And that's what Lupron does. When you're taking Lupron, it suppresses your ovaries. And as we established in the majority of patients, once you go off Lupron a month later, there's still ovary suppression and the menstrual cycle is not coming back right away. If the title doesn't give me the answer, I mean, I feel like it kind of does, but just in case there might be a little bit more to it, explain what the result of the study was. As the title very obviously showed, (laughs) it showed that the endo didn't disappear, but that the appearance became less obvious to the surgeon while taking Danosol or a suppression drug. For those two reasons, I definitely understand why Dr. Redwine said that the study design was flawed. If the first laparoscopy is meant to see the level of endometriosis using the point system, which is not very precise and kind of up to interpretation, I can see how those results might be varied. And then when using the second laparoscopy to see whether or not the endometriosis has diminished or decreased post-treatment, if you're doing that at a time where the drug is still having an effect on the body in suppressing the endometriosis or changing the appearance, then you're not getting a good read on what the endometriosis truly looks like. Doing the post-treatment laparoscopy just a month after finishing Lupron can lead to misleading data. Why don't we take the second laparoscopy when the period has returned and when the symptoms have resurfaced? That'd be a much better read on seeing what the endometriosis looks like if we do it then. Well, and I feel like we kind of have that data, although it's not a clinical trial, but just the fact that many endometriosis experts prefer that the patient hasn't been on suppression drugs, so like prefers that they haven't been on Lupron, for example, two to three months prior to surgery, because the visual appearance of endometriosis is lessened. So to add to this, our beloved Dr. Redwine. Oh, wait, hold on. Ah, Dr. Redwine. (laughs) I knew you were going to do that. Thank you, Dr. Redwine. I love him. He's just so wonderful. He's so smart. And he advocates for us. And he cares a whole heck of a lot. And he's so passionate. Thank you, Dr. Redwine. Thank you for everybody out there like Dr. Redwine. So he says that there is, quote, no evidence that GnRH agonists reduce endometriosis to microscopic levels, end quote. Ooh, but you know what does reduce endometriosis to microscopic levels or gets rid of it completely? I'm going to go with excision surgery for 300, Amy. Uh, ding, 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 ding. Oh, I ding, won! Ding. <laughs> <laughs> Where's my $300? You're going to get back to me on that one? <laughs> and she runs away. <laughs> She's left the box, everyone! Okay, thank God. Now I'm finally alone. Back to Dr. Redwine's research. All by myself. I'm just kidding. She's still here. God, She'll never Brittany. leave me. <laughs> I'll never step away from your side. 
Yeah, I knew that. I knew what I was signing up for. <laughs> I'm like endometriosis that has had Lupron. I don't I'm disappear. I will not excise you. I promise. I, not, I will not go. <laughs> oh, well, learning that was really fun. Or was it? Mm, I'm going to have to go with the... Or was it? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> the final thing that we want to talk about, I mean, I guess it's nice to be knowledgeable. Like, I like being informed. I feel like prior to researching and writing this episode, like I knew things about Lupron and Alyssa too, because this is the Lupron and Alyssa series trilogy, tetralogy. Oh, look at you using the word I taught you. But now I feel like, oh, wow, like, I feel like I really I feel like my brain's full of facts. <laughs> yeah, like I'm just really knowledgeable. I'm like, yes, I have memorized the now FDA we can be crusader prescribing information about Lupron. <laughs> Ask me any it's question. Bookmarked in my phone. I know every page. <laughs> I got a tattoo of the chemical structure on my oh back. My. <laughs> you turn <laughs> For around. For reference, there's just like these like hydrogen and carbon and whatever atoms. Try to court seal me, proprietary data. It's on me. <laughs> they come, they just like chop your arm off. Oh, <laughs> that's our data. I'm like, but that's my right arm. Ooh, that's a very ethical, philosophical question there. Ooh. That's for another episode for another time. Well, that you don't have to chop your arm off. You would just get like a tattoo over it. You have to like cover it up. Yeah, get you a cover could, up. Like, black out the tattoo. Or laser. Only if they catch you. <laughs> you gotta get caught. <laughs> well, if anyone is listening to this episode, please know I did not go get a tattoo of Lupron's chemical structure on my back. It's actually on my It's ankle. on her thigh. <laughs> <laughs> Jinx. Okay, so, but before we end this episode, we want to talk about one more thing that we found very shocking and very disheartening and very heartbreaking and just very, I don't know, it's just as people... Like, when you're a nice, good person who cares about other people and you're empathetic and, like, and you wouldn't want to hurt other people, this this information just blows Brittany and I's mind. And it will probably blow your mind as well that just people can be out there with such a blatant disregard for for the safety of others. Wow, that was quite an intro to this next point. Where are we going with this? We're going to talk about Andrew Friedman, who was a researcher in the clinical studies of Lupron. Okay, now the intro makes sense. All right. Exactly correct. Corroborate the feelings. What we want to say about Andrew Friedman is that he, like I said, was a researcher for clinical studies on Lupron, and he admitted to falsifying the data in two Lupron studies. So what do you mean by falsified? How did he falsify this data? Okay, so... Between 1992 and 1995, when I was in second grade until when I was in fifth grade. Aww. Little baby you I was a wee little baby. Your endo was just slowly growing. (laughs) (laughs) This is a little baby endo. (laughs) My endo was not yet alert and alive inside. No, it was lurking. (laughs) (laughs) It was just like hiding in the shadows, waiting for puberty (laughs) to happen. Basically, Andrew Friedman, so at trial, he reported that during that period from 1992 to 1995, during those three years, he made up data. Like, just made it up? Yep. He made up clinic visits that didn't happen. He made up patient notes. One of the studies was for the effectiveness and safety of Lupron with the ADBAC therapy that so many of us taking Lupron take which is supposed to help with the permanent side effects like the 
bone mineral density loss, things like that. So one of the studies that he falsified the data for was about the effectiveness and safety of Lupron for endometriosis. The effectiveness and safety, those are like the only things I care about when I'm deciding whether or not I should put a drug in my body. Jeez. Will it work? Will it hurt me? Yeah, that's all I need to know. Sure, I'd love to see a falsified study telling me that it will work and it won't hurt me. Yes. Yes. Show me the fake data. I think that just made me dizzy and I think I blacked out for a second. (laughs) That makes me almost speechless. The integrity or lack of integrity of somebody that you're supposed to trust to learn about medical things and medical research. Just a complete lack of integrity is astonishing. He admitted that he made up about 80% of the data in this study. 80% is basically like the whole thing. That's meaning like, I made up most of it, but like a little bit of it is true. Here's my entire meal. That's all fake, but the salt and pepper is real. That's not okay. Where's my meal? I made up most of it, but it's really about endometriosis and Lupron. Those are facts, but then the, all the data is made up. <laughs> I spelled the word endometriosis correctly. So that's the 20% that was true. I got the definition wrong. So that's one of the things that's also made up. (laughs) Typical. Side note, the definition of endometriosis is incorrect on the Lupron website. Exactly. We would love to see the definition. You're treating a drug. It's been long enough time. You have a website about your drug that is treating endometriosis, but you can't even define it correctly. You don't know what endometriosis is. Can you see how this is, like... Infuriating. (laughs) And just, like, not promising, like, we treat this disease. We have no idea what it is. We didn't get the definition of this disease correct. (laughs) And their website's been up long enough that, like, it didn't come out yesterday. Like, you could just update it. Or Alyssa had the correct definition of endometriosis on one part of their website, but then at other parts, because, like, in different parts, you can, like, learn about endometriosis and what does Alyssa treat. So it kept, like, defining endo. And some of the definitions were correct, and it was like, it is endometrial-like tissue. And some of the definitions were wrong. And they were like, this is your uterus lining in the wrong spot. I was like, no, No, it's it's not. not. (laughs) Ah, Get it right. You treat the disease, (laughs) for God's sakes. If that doesn't tell you their priorities, I don't know what does. (laughs) Okay, so the study that was on endometriosis that he falsified was a two-year study on eight patients. Yikes, that's small. Yeah, but it's interesting because what I noticed was that a lot of the Lupron studies that were done, like back when Lupron came out, so like in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, they had really small numbers. And if we recall, I mean, we talked about earlier the effectiveness of Lupron one year after stopping the treatment, and the numbers were really small as well. It was like 30 people. 30 people, 25 people. That's tiny. They're having really sample sizes. They're small. Okay, so the conclusions of this study, quote unquote, the conclusions from all the fake data show. I feel air quotes around that word. (laughs) Show that Lupron was effective and safe, or should I go, quote unquote, effective, quote unquote, safe? Yes, do that. Okay. I went to look at the study. Now, the study has a redaction notice. Like, if you go look at the study, it depends where. Like, in some of the places where I found the study online, it did not say that it was redacted, but. In some of the better sites like PubMed, for example, which is like a search engine for medical articles, it does put at the top of the article like article retracted, which means that it never should have been published and it should not be used for future research. 
but it's still out there. It's still out there. And like I said, in some of the websites where they pulled the article, it didn't show the redaction notice. So it's like, oh, my God, this article is not based on sound science. And it's and been only redacted. some people know. <laughs> and not everywhere showing that's redacted. But again, you know, science should be based on hmm. science. I don't know. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> Maybe. Eh, Sometimes. Seems open for interpretation lately. (laughs) So the article said that Lupron reduces the lesions in people with endometriosis because the average endometriosis scores, which you talked about the points and the scores for the implants and the adhesions and the endometriomas, etc., it showed that they were significantly reduced after treatment with Lupron. Their conclusion was that Lupron reduces endometriosis lesions significantly. And it also concluded that the patients in the study had significantly less pain. And then it also concluded that the add-back treatments significantly reduce those pesky hot flashes people tend to get when they're on Lupron. And it concluded that the bone density measurements, which a side effect of taking Lupron can be that you have thinning of your bone density, and it showed that bone density was not significantly reduced. So there was no significant change in bone density. So there's no significant permanent side effect. Wow, they really liked to use the word significant. What a positive and resounding conclusion. Everything seems significantly positive significantly better. They significantly used it four times. They significantly falsified this data. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Would you call 80% significant? I would, yes. Mm, So would I, yes. (laughs) That's the only thing significant about this study. (laughs) While it's good that these two articles of Andrew Friedman got retracted a few years after being published, who knows how many studies and articles referenced his falsified data in the time that it wasn't retracted. So now among all these different scientific papers on Lupron, who knows how many have there the fake data which is being taken as fact in those articles. So when we were looking at this article on PubMed, which is a popular search engine for medical research articles, you can click on Andrew Friedman's name. So I was like, oh my God, I'm going to click on that. I was like, ooh, a biography? No. What I saw, all the articles that he had ever researched. He has dozens of published research out there. And he had several studies on Lupron. So he admitted to falsifying two studies. But that's because he was caught. But who knows if he actually falsified more than two studies on Lupron, more than one study on endometriosis. We don't, we don't know that. I mean, ooh, you caught me. No, we're just speculating here. But ooh, you caught me. Yes, I falsified these two because what you caught me with. Those two. Those two, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, so I false. Yes, yes. I falsified those two. But if you don't get caught, I mean, oh, yeah, mommy, I only took one cookie from the cookie jar. But you took five cookies from the cookie jar. It's only wrong if you get caught. But since mommy (laughs) baked 100 cookies, she doesn't know how many cookies. You see what I mean? Like, we don't know if he falsified more information on Lupron, which is very scary and which is very 
disheartening to think about Dr. Redwine's independent analysis of the data showing that the published data didn't match the raw conclusions. And then you have one of the researchers who admits at trial for falsifying data. In my opinion, it's not easy to, to trust the data and the information out there on Lupron based on all of these different revelations that have come to light since Lupron has come out. We just went over a lot of information about Lupron, about their effectiveness, about hidden data, cherry-picked data, raw data, roasted data. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of foods have sautéed data, grilled data. But we just went over a lot of information. So, you know, we understand if right now you're feeling overwhelmed or surprised or shocked or disappointed. When we were learning all of these things and we still are feeling so many feelings about finding out all this information, what we want you to know is that if you're taking Lupron or if you're taking Orlissa or if you're thinking about taking either one of those drugs, We hope that this information has helped you in your journey to decide what is best for you. And we said this before, but we really want to stress that our point here is not to scare anyone with this information. Our point is just to offer the information that we found because we understand that not everyone has the time to research and to read about these really important things. But many people want to know this kind of information when they make a choice about what to put in their bodies. So we really hope that you found this episode today informative. And we want you to know that we love talking to everyone in this community. We are here for you. We understand endometriosis and endometriosis pain and all the symptoms. There have been times when the pain has just been so debilitating and I've been so desperate to do anything to get out of my pain. It can be really hard to live with endo. It can be really hard to find the treatment plan that is right for us. And we just want you to know that, you know, no matter what you decide, it's your body. It's your choice. It's your treatment for your symptoms. So there's no judgment here. Sometimes we hear a lot of judgment in the community about taking Lupron or taking Orlissa, but we're just all trying to do what is right for us. You're all so ridiculously strong to live with endometriosis. If you're in a difficult place right now, we hope that things will get better for you. If you are taking Orlissa or you're taking Lupron, we hope that it is working for you. We hope that the benefits are outweighing the risks for you. We want nothing more than for you to feel better, to feel relief, whether that be taking Orlissa or taking Lupron or doing yoga or meditating or having excision surgery or doing pelvic floor therapy or doing acupuncture or, you know, whatever you choose to do to try to manage your symptoms. Thank you so much for hanging on till the end of this episode. And making it through part two of our three-part series. If you want to reach out to us, we are on the website in 16years.com. And from there, you can connect with us via email. And we are also on the Instagram page at in16yearsofendo. 
If you'd like to support us, you can rate our podcast in your podcast app, reach out to us via email or Instagram, or buy us a coffee via the support page on our website. Thank you so much for listening and for spending this time with us and allowing us to talk about this topic that's very dear to our hearts. We're going to air part three on side effects in a couple of episodes, so it's not the very next episode. We're spacing it out because there are a lot to handle and they're (laughs) long ones. So we want to make sure that you are mind and body ready for them. And now we're also mind and body ready (laughs) to talk about these (laughs) really heavy topics. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time.